want to start a new conversation with this morning. I won't pretend to you that I have any idea how long it'll go on for. I, I think sometimes I'm guilty of limiting the, the, the kind of wider conversation that maybe God would like because we tend to do our kind of teaching or preaching segments in, in month kind of phases. But uh, in, in true monthly kind of form, it's got four parts to it, so we'll see how we get on. But today, I wanted to introduce you to a conversation I think is, that is long overdue in the church, and it's a conversation about relationships. I remember very powerfully when I first became a Christian, imagining for one minute that the relationships people had in the church would be different than the relationships that people had outside the church. Do you remember those crazy heady days when you thought everyone was holy? No, you never had those moments. Well, for me, that was a little bit of a shock, if I'm honest. I, I remember walking with God in a particular way, and he used to nail me on just about everything I was saying and doing. And so when I would come along to church and people would say things or gossip or, you know, judge somebody, I, I found that quite a difficult thing to kind of come to terms to. And then, of course, we all have that realization, don't we, that we're all sinners, even if we're sitting in a congregation like this. Everyone's hopelessly flawed. And we've spent so many years living our own way that living God's way sometimes seems an elusive reality. So, I came to terms with it eventually, but it's been an uneasy kind of partnership for, for me over the years. I think when I read through the scriptures, I see over and over again that relationships are really at the key, at the center of all that God wants to do. And so if our relationships are not working well, then we should not be shocked that the kingdom is not working well. Um, and it also seems interesting to me that the church really is a rep representation or a reflection of the most perfect relationship, which is the relationship of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The ecclesia, the called out ones, and also the called into relationship ones are meant to have the same kind of honoring and interaction and affirmation as the Trinity afford to the Father, to the Son, to the Son, to the Father, the Holy Spirit to the Son. And um, really, it's what we would call, and we've been singing it this morning, heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is not some mystical thing that happens in a room, okay? Heaven on earth is God's people living well. Living well, loving well, and delighting in Him and desiring at least to see relationships in their lives have the best opportunity to flourish. And God is no fool because relationships for all of us are both the best moments of our lives. I remember standing 28 years ago now at the front of a church not too far away from here called Birmingham Christian Church. It was just called BCC at the time then. What's this with all the names changing? I can't keep up. And uh, I stood there and I looked back down the aisle and there was my wife Jane. And I wept. I think I cried through every part of the service. I don't think there is a, a, a wedding photograph where I don't look like someone from a vampire movie. Um, because I could not catch my breath that God, in his great wisdom, would allow me the privilege and the honor of having Jane as my wife. It was one of the most remarkable days in my life. And uh, I've spent 28 years trying to understand how remarkable it is. And when I forget 
you fill in the blanks. There's, there's someone who is great at remembering. And, and those wonderful euphoric moments when you just feel so alive and so well and so profoundly awakened to life and love, and they are all part of the tapestry of our lives. And if you haven't had a moment like that, then maybe today is your day. But relationships have profound impact on us. What about the first time a mother holds her baby in her arms? There's such love, unconditional love given without any words attached to it. It's the most profound and beautiful and exceptional thing that someone who caused you so much pain could instantly bring you so much joy. Instantly, and it's almost like amnesia kicks in and you can't remember the hours of labor. You're just smitten. You're smitten with this tiny little bundle. Don't know what to do with them. Don't know how it works. You've read the books. You've seen the films, but actually now, and I remember when we took Emily home thinking, what are we going to do with her? Do we put her in the front of the car? I mean, they don't tell you that at the hospital. Now they do, perhaps. Do you put her in the back of the car? Do we hold her in our arms? And um, our little girl, she was breech, and uh, Jane had to have a cesarean section for her. And so there was this little time in hospital. I remember coming back to the church. She didn't have paternity leave in those days. Gentlemen, just hardcore, hardcore. That's all I'm saying, hardcore. You went straight from the hospital back to the church, and that's how it worked. And uh, I remember going in and being jealous of the fact that Jane had all this time with, with Emily and, and kind of pushing her hand away as she was seeking to touch her while I was in the room. Relationships. God's best afforded to us through the kindness, the love, the support, the affection, and the togetherness of other people. How Marvelous, how wonderful. And yet, also, relationships are the places where we experience the worst pain known to humanity. I don't know how many times I've prayed with people who felt rejected by somebody that was close to them. Something that happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago, sometimes 50 or even 60 years ago, still playing itself out in the heart of an individual who cannot come to terms with the fact that their mother didn't love them the way they needed to be loved or their father was distant or, or aloof from them. 30, 40, 50 years of trying to figure that out. It's profound, isn't it? And I do think there's a tendency in society right now to blame everybody for your behavior Right at the beginning of the scriptures, when God comes to Adam and chastises him over the fact that he has betrayed the covenant of love that existed between him and God, he said something like this, she made me do it. Men have been hiding behind that for ever, ever. Nobody makes you do anything. That's the truth. Unless, of course, in, you're in the army or you're subscribed to some kind of you know, relationship with somebody who controls you, which I highly recommend you get out of if that is the case. But we have a choice. We have a capacity to say yay or nay to certain things. But I think there's a cultural norm right now where we want to take the spotlight from our own responsibility to those things that happen to us, both good and bad, and we want to shift it somewhere else. 
So because you didn't have a great childhood, you're now an absolute nightmare. Now, the fact that you're 30-something and your childhood is a long-distant memory doesn't seem to equate with you that you have a responsibility to change the way you live. Yes, bad stuff happens to good people. That's true. But good people happen to bad stuff. That's also true. And I have a little phrase, and it's a phrase that I've lived by for most of my adult life. I may have been a victim to certain things, and uh, those of you who know me more personally know that some of those things have been a big issue for me in my life. But if I stay a victim longer than one second more than I have to, then I am now a volunteer. I've subscribed to a particular way of living that maybe had been caused by pain, but in Christ Jesus, the one who sets every captive free, amen? I have to work with him to allow the life that he affords me by the Spirit to bring healing and restoration. And um, the blame game is no game at all. And I just want to let you know that when you come to God with that kind of approach, you will probably find that your relationship with him does not function well. Why? Because God knows what's happened to you, but greater is he who is in you than anything that's taken place in your world. God will never allow you, never allow you, to not take responsibility for the way you're living your life. I can't do that for you. Your husband, your wife certainly can't do that for you. You have to embrace that truth yourself, and you have to make the choices that you need to make. And you won't be surprised to hear that the Bible is full of advice for us as human beings in our relationship. The first relationship that I think for many of us is the starting point of transformation is our relationship with God. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 38, Jesus answering the question of what eternal life really looks like. What does this life in the fullness of God really look like? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. Now, the reason it's the greatest and the most important commandment is it's because it's the foundation of everything. It's the identity and indeed the destiny attached to what it means for us to be reconnected and reunited with God. Our original design was to be in fellowship and relationship with Him. And a lot of our problems have materialized in our lives and all the brokenness and the sin and the pain and the anger and the violence and all that we've become so well rehearsed in seeing and understanding is as a result of that fracture between God and man. If Adam had not sinned, can you imagine where we would be today? The world would be a very different place. But Jesus came and has the power to restore everything that Adam lost, Jesus won back for you. And when we start our journey with God as Christians, it's not like we don't have a catalog of problems or difficulties. God sees everything. He knows everything about your life. But he asks you to trust him as you submit your whole life, not just your words or your songs or your religious 
pious acts, your whole life to relationship with him. And he instructs us that this is his goal for us. This is his dream for your life, that you would grow to such a point of trusting him that you love him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And I just want to suggest to you that whatever you think the will of the Holy Spirit is or the vision that God has for your life, if you just step away from jobs and interviews and career choices and think for a moment, you'll realize that this is God's dream and this is God's destiny for everybody who walks in relationship with Him. And this loving God stuff, okay, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. We have added, I think, so much to that. We've added behavior, and we've added practices, and we've added all these things. But loving God is simply a response of worship to him on a moment-by-moment basis that says, God, I want to live my whole life given to you. I want to give myself to you. I want to lay my life before you like you laid your life down for me. And it's a consistent, I think, invitation from God for us to live like that. And those three areas, let's talk about those areas. Uh, with all of our heart, just on a scale of one to 10, could you identify yourself? Don't tell us, we don't need to know. I've got my own troubles. I don't need to, to be worried about yours. But on a scale of one to 10, you know, how are you doing in loving God with all your heart? I hope you're better than you were a couple of years ago. Sadly, sometimes things happen in life and we're worse than we were a couple of years ago. But that's what God is doing. So when you're interacting with the world around you, when you're interacting with the people around you, be aware of that, that the goal of the Spirit is that you would grow to love Him with all of your heart. An undivided heart is a heart that God can trust to explore the expansive kingdom that He has made available to us. What about with all of your mind? I had an epiphany, I think, about 10 years ago. I was saying, God, why can't we see the blessings that you have for us? And God said to me, have you ever stopped to think about what you think about? And yet I knew the scripture that says, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. I also knew this scripture, which is also profound as a, as a life journey. So as a man thinks, he is, okay? But I never, ever stopped to put the two pieces together. Here am I trying to live my best life and struggling with all manner of things and disappointed with all kinds of things and I didn't realize, didn't recognize that my mind was leading my life. And I would think that my heart was a worshiping heart. It tends to have always been like that since I discovered Jesus. But my mind became my enemy. It became the enemy to the fullness that God wanted for me because if I'm really honest with you, I remember sitting down one day, I didn't tell Jane because she would think it too indulgent, but I sat down and I wrote down, just in the first hour of my day, what nonsense I had thought about. <laughs> Here's one of them. I wondered if conflicts spoke. <laughs> Do conflicts speak? Do they have... Now, you laugh, but I'm a creative person, and my mind goes off in all kinds of places. I remember the dogs running in and out, and one of them had messed the floor, and I thought, in my mind, I thought, when will they die? When will they die? When will they die? I would not dare say it out loud in my house. I would not dare say it. But I mean, it crossed my mind, and I, I thought, will we have a funeral in the paddock for them? What will we do? How would it look? And, and a good 10 minutes of my life was caught up with the funeral of two dogs that 
if I'm honest, my heart really was wishing dead because I was so fed up with the mess and the chaos and the nonsense and our whole lives. I mean, don't judge me because that's wasting your mind <laughs> when you could be thinking of better things. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody and you spent, the argument lasted like a minute and a oh, the outcome would be so different. Or you're driving along in the car and somebody, in the, in the, this happens to me quite a lot, in, a, in a, a, a parking lot, takes the space that you are reversing into. I, can, I could chew on that for two hours. I mean, it ruins the shopping. I mean, I'm distracted by all kinds of, I should have just reversed into him. Just ignored. But I'm too polite to act like that. But on the inside, I'm chewed up about that. Now, I know enough about human beings to know that I'm not an unusual candidate. So much of our internal world has been affected and disaffected by the amount of time and space we've given to all kinds of thoughts that never really materialized and certainly haven't led us to life. That's why we're encouraged to take control over our minds Take every thought captive, every vain imagination. And here's how the enemy thwarts your destiny. These two things are connected. By filling your mind with things that actually distract you from the one thing that changes everything. And that is that God has spoken over your life. And we have to ask ourselves the question, I think on an hourly basis, well, whose report, whose report are we going to believe here? So your mind is a battlefield. And if you can win some of those battles, you might find that you start to move a little bit further into the destiny and the plan of God. And what about your actions? I think one of the greatest criticisms that people cite concerning Christians is that they say one thing and do another. Have your friends ever said that to you? I have lots of, I had lots of friends. <laughs> As I've gone on in ministry, they've faded away. I've just become boring, I think. But they used to say to me, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And I couldn't disagree. <laughs> people who sang these songs about trusting God. And on Monday, we had to call people out to help them because they were so full of anxiety and worry. There's a lot of that kind of duplicity, I think, sometimes in the body of Christ. We say one thing, but actually the way we actually live looks like God doesn't exist at all some days. And then I came up with this wonderful phrase. I used to always say, no, it's not. No, it's not. These are good people. They love God. All of that's true. And then one day when someone said to me, I think it was um, a famous comedian. He said to me, the church is full of hypocrites. I said, you're right. You're right. But there's always room for one more. So come on, come and sit on the front row with the rest of us. And, and it just totally disarmed him. Didn't know what to say to that. Loving God has been the preoccupation of 28 years of my life. And um, the second part of that scripture, I want to just camp on for whatever time we have left. It says this, the second is like it. Love your neighbor, listen to the phrase, you all know it, but do you know it? 
Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All of Moses' teaching and the prophets depend on these two commands. So we get this in church. We get that we are called to love God. Amen? How will we do? Are you okay? Are you losing the will to live yet? Who said yes? Not you. Get out. (laughs) That's a consistent and a persistent mantra of the church. Love God. Just love God, Simon. Love God with all your heart. Love God with all your might. Most sermons are centered around that devotional concept of what it would look like for us to have our lives fully immersed in that kind of reality with God. Not just as sound bites, but actually the fullness of that expression. But the other part of it also seems to be uh, a preoccupation of the church. Love your neighbor. (laughs) Oh, God, really? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Have you met my neighbor? Have you met met them? God, come on. And um, we know that that doesn't mean the people that live upside up above you or below you in the flats or next door or across the street. We know that's all humanity. Just saying. That's all humanity. Amen? This is how they will know that you're my disciples, by the love you have one for another. In other words, what happens in here, which is where I'm heading today, should turn up out there and it should cause me to reflect the nature of the triune wonder of the family of God to the people that I'm connecting to. And um, if we were ever to do a straw poll, honestly, if it was to come up on the screen, how I do with that or you do with that, I think most people would be horrified at how pitiful our attempts are at engaging in that process. And, And here's what we've reduced it to. Sitting in our comfortable lives which actually Jesus has blessed you with, and praying from a distance (laughs) that God would smite, I mean, bless people. I mean, no engagement whatsoever, no connection whatsoever, nothing human. We just want the God who is supernatural (laughs) to do something, do something, God. And here's our motivation. They're filthy, dirty, rotten sinners. <laughs> That's our motivation. You know, it's, you know, if you were God and you were kind of getting that on a regular basis, would you like not go? I love these people, Simon. These people matter to me. The filthy, dirty, <laughs> rotten sinners. Get them, Jesus. Get them. Get them. I mean, I'm not going to get them. I don't want to go anywhere near them. But if you could, in your supernatural power, just touch them. God, here's the best place when they're vulnerable to sleep. We pray for dreams and visions. Because we wouldn't do what God asked us to do and care for our Islamic brothers and sisters. Okay. Here's how God is reaching them through dreams and visions. I had a lady turn up in the church in Bristol she had a son with cerebral palsy, 14-year-old boy, and he used to thrash around every night. And so she would put him to bed downstairs. He couldn't make it upstairs. And she went upstairs just to close her eyes. And she hears this noise, and she thinks something terrible has 
happen and she comes down and her son is vibrating on the floor and um, he can't uh, communicate particularly well but she hears that he has seen someone that has caused him to be like this and so she's trying to work out what this is and it turns out that Jesus touched his body and he never had cerebral palsy ever again Uh, and she went to bed crying because she obviously her whole life had been taken up with looking after this young man or the two other children. And uh, while she slept, Jesus came to her in her dreams and said to her, he referred to himself as Yeshua and said to her, I have come that you could have life and freedom and joy and peace and you need to get yourself into some kind of environment where people understand that. And so we were the church that she complained about making noise on a Sunday morning to the council. Isn't that serendipity? I love it. And she came and said you know, to me at the end, just weeping, weeping under the touch of the Holy Spirit, I met someone last night, the man of light, she called him, and he told me his name was Yeshua, and I've come here. And so we had the great joy of inviting her heart to connect with God's heart, and she found salvation that day. She didn't journey with us long because if you know anything about how that works, that becomes a massive issue for the context in which she was living in as an as Islamic person and she had to flee the country and go somewhere else. But she kept writing occasionally to us to let us know how it was going. And her boy is walking around. I remember the best letter, he's dating somebody. I mean, she was so happy he was dating. I mean, lots of parents are happy when their kids are dating, aren't they? But, but she was so happy that he was having some kind of normal life. And he was about 17 or 18, I think, at that time. So because we kind of don't do that very well, <laughs> is this okay? Come on, be honest with yourself. Because we're not that great at that. God supersedes that. But I think loving people is the greatest privilege that any human being can ever experience. I think to be so in love that you can't help but love is probably the antidote to so much of the ails in society. I think if we really have embraced this loving God who has embraced us fully and has transformed our internal world and we're so caught up with that and so overwhelmed by his goodness and so surrendered to his beauty, I think it's impossible for that not to leak out into society. And so what I always try and do, and and I've done it in every church I've ever been in, is help people really understand how much they are loved by God. Because that becomes the place where all of this becomes mobilized. And, And then we're not seeing people through the eyes of fear or um, ignorance or just, I hate this phrase. You're going to have to forgive me if I say anything that tramples us and them. Who are us and who are them? For God so loved the world. And if you are a Christian this morning and, and maybe that's your persuasion, you're convicted and convinced that that's the truth, then you do understand, don't you, that the only reason that you have that relationship is because God reached out to you. You did not choose him. He chose you. And so we, we sit in that reality. We, we abide in that beauty that, that this wonderful, glorious thing that's happening to us is not our efforts or our value systems or our understanding of theological truths. It's simply that the God who loves the world turned up in my world and showed me his world. 
That's what this is. That's all I have. And it's all I need. And so I can't do us and them. There's just us who've been graced with revelation. And there is us who as yet have not come. I think that's why in Acts chapter 2, when the New Testament church begins, prophecy of Joel is, is um, declared over this moment. It says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I have been, could be potentially uneasy with that statement. Are you serious, God? You're going to hang out with people who don't want to hang out with you? You see, we love, we really do love boundaries. We love walls. We're the ones who are in. Is it gone quiet because this is good or because you're scared? (laughs) We're the ones who are in, and then consequently, if you're not in, then you're... We love walls, but the Spirit loves bridges. God loves bridges. There's no decompartmentalization. The way we would see things is not the way God sees things. God loves the world. Yeah. And he pours his spirit out on people you wouldn't cross the road to help. Even though I can see it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. I can sing it. Do I believe it? Now, right in the middle of these two realities, loving God and loving others, is this little phrase, and it's loaded. It's absolutely loaded. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor, we've explored that, as you, oh, I mean, do you? See. There lies the problem. It would seem to me that maybe some of the reasons we struggle to love others is because we haven't come to terms with the fact that we don't love ourselves. Now, before you think I'm going all New Age or Oprah on you, okay, because that's the alternative reality, isn't it? I do think it's very difficult to give away what you haven't got. Don't you? So if I don't love myself, do you not think that that might affect the way I see things? Talk to me. If I don't love myself, am I actually, are you ready for this? Am I actually in the kind of relationship with God that he wants? If God loves me unconditionally and I haven't yet made up my mind about me, Do you not think there'll be some anomalies in the way we interact with each other? Of course there will be. And they turn up in the most profound ways. People on the platform like this or either others who are friends will come and say to you, the Lord loves you. He causes his face to shine upon you. His favor rests and you think, oh, thank you, thank you so much. And you think, not me. I mean, that, that may work for everybody else, but there's almost like a, a resistance or an inability to embrace the truth of God's word because there is another kingdom that's been established in you that causes that truth to to not penetrate to the parts of your heart where it needs to sit. 
Hello? What about this one? Here's a little acid test to how you're doing. You are wonderfully and fearfully made. Oh, God. Are you kidding? Are you kidding, Jesus? I mean, I can't even get out of bed in the morning without complaining about something. There's nothing wonderful about that. And here's what we do. Here's what we do. We have this separation between what we say we believe and how we actually live. And you know what? We think that's okay. We think that's okay. We think it's okay to say all these things and not live them. Jesus didn't come to give you a great understanding of theological truth. Jesus came to open you up to the fullness of the theos, the nature, the character, and the person of God. And you can have the best theology in the world and have the worst life in the world. Do you know who's got really good theology? The devil. The devil. The devil. The devil. Really good theology. He knows how it all works. He knows who God is. He knows the Son of Righteousness comes with healing in his wings. He knows the Savior, the Messiah who's come. He knows that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His theology is way above mine or yours or even all of ours collectively. But he is not living in and can't submit to and will never yield to the reality of the nature and the character and the person of God. It's gone way too far for that, and the distance is so vast it could never be engulfed. And he's not going to be saved. But for those of us who are being saved, we must be honest about this and say, God, maybe all of these truths that you tell me about myself need to become a reality in me before they can ever show up through me to the world around me. Otherwise, what we do is religious practice. We do good things for people. But if I do good things for people but have not been made good, what am I? But a Pharisee or a scribe. If I try to impress people by those types of activities, but my soul is not living in those realities, what am I? A Pharisee or a scribe? There's a massive need for the church to step away from some things, and more importantly for me, to step into some things. It's not okay anymore for us to have all of these things that we say and not actually allow ourselves to ever submit or submerge ourselves in the true nature of who God is and who God has created us to be. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That way of thinking... <laughs> That way of acting came out of your separation from God. It came out of that. We have old man mindsets, though we declare new man truths. And unless those things change, we will just recite the Bible as opposed to live it. Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. In other words, I don't have to live under that regime anymore. I have options now. And look what he brought us into. He brought us into the kingdom 
of his beloved son. He brought us into the kingdom. He brought us into the fullness. He brought us into the, the, the abiding glory, power, majesty, peace, mercy, greatness of God. He didn't just bring me out of something. He brought me into something. And if there's anything that's holding me back where I was, I have got to be ruthless about allowing God to heal and restore and renew my life until it partners with the new reality concerning my salvation. I am a new creature in Christ. The old has gone. It has gone. And some of these mindsets, these resistors, if you like, that stop the fullness of God's blessing are found and rooted in the fact that you don't love yourself. And you don't love yourself the way God loves you. And, and even there, I could camp for a month. You don't love the, yourself the way the Word says you are. You don't see yourself the way God sees you. You don't live in the fullness of what God has done for you. Come on, let's keep this real here this morning. And so you can sing all your songs. And you can say all your things and you can do all your acts of great kindness and mercy. And you can pray from a distance for those that you hope God would bless in some way. But Jesus did not die for that reality. He died so that you could live in fullness. You could live at peace with God and yourself. And yourself. And the old song used to say it well. It is well with my soul. And this duplicitous approach, this double-mindedness, nice to see you. No, don't worry, lovely to have you with us. Thank you for coming. Yeah. This duplicitous way actually is the very thing that the scriptures say when it says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. That's what it's talking about. How can I say that God loves me unconditionally when the jury is out? Fundamentally, who's telling the truth? And here's where that stuff comes from. Let me just give you a couple of insights as to how that catalog of disagreements have fashioned in your heart. Generational curses. None of you in this room were born out of that context. You were all part of a long line of people, some crazy, some wonderful. And you are, in many ways, when you come to Christ, the sum total of generational spirituality. Amen? Now, for African brothers and sisters and those outside of the continent of Europe, you will get this profoundly more easily than some other people in the room. But actually... This notion that you are an individual, you have been born with a particular you know, moment in history is absolute nonsense and it does not fit with what the scriptures say. You were born for such a time as this, but you are also part. Otherwise, when I first became a Christian, I could not read the beginnings of the New Testament because it said so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. So I think, why are you telling me all of this? What do I care what generational people, but when you look across how God communicates, God does not think of us as just mere individuals. We are part of a much bigger story. It's the story of humanity, and in your case, it's the story of your family. And guess what? They didn't all walk in fullness and truth. Some of them drank. 
Some of them slept around. Now, I know you haven't. But for the benefit of those you're pretending not to be, <laughs> you can't look back in your family line without seeing brokenness. You really can't. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. Doesn't it? And you weren't born by accident. Do we all agree that? I have a destiny. Do you remember that song? I know I will fulfill. There's a timeline and God birthed you, knitted you together in your mother's womb. You were conceived by the Holy Spirit in some ways because God had a plan and a purpose. You are an eternal being. And so nothing is accidental about that. So whether you like your ancestors or your in-laws or your outlaws or whoever you choose to view them, the truth is you are not separated from them. The only thing that changes you from them is the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ has purchased your life. Amen? Are you still with me? Okay, are you with the Woolwich? You're with me. Okay. That means that you have the potential to be free. Let me use the phrase potential because while we know that Jesus has provided freedom, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're living in it. Yeah? Stay with me. Okay, so you turn up in this world. You are lovely and cuddly and sweet, and some of you were just ugly at birth, but that's another subject. And your parents loved you, and they wanted you, and they desired you, and they did their best for you, but actually behind the scenes of all of that interaction was a long line of spiritual things, both good and maybe bad, that became available to you. So I've noticed some things. Did you know that there are generational dynamics to demonic influences that control lives in a family? And here's how it manifests. You have a mother who has anxiety and she worries about everything and everything is moved and shifted and changed because unless she feels safe, we're all having a bad day. Okay, now nobody really knows what makes her safe and she's not really sure how to be safe, but we're all going to adjust everything around this to accommodate insecurity, fear, anxiety, concern. She has no idea that she has entered into a contract where she is controlling things. Because in her mind, it's about her safety. It's about her well-being. But you grow up in a house where that happens repeatedly, and you will find that those things start to filter down into the children. And here's two responses. Rebellion is usually my favorite. I'm just being honest. You know, ah, to heck with it all. Just get on with your life, forget everything, and carefreeness and casualness and indifference. All of those things come with that little package. And it's, it's one I've explored a few times in the course of my life. And I always think it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. But that becomes a problem which is related to this situation. And then you have the other side of the family where everything has to be nailed down. And so here's how that works. We're going out for dinner tonight. Who's going to be there? Just some people from the church. What do I have to wear? What's expected from me? Well, I expect you'll eat something. At least look at the menu. 
And presenting itself is this reflection of what is a generational spiritual thing where control is, there is always fear. Those two things go hand in hand. And do you know that control is the same spirit as witchcraft? Because where there is control, there will be manipulation. See, relationships are important to God. Stay with me. So generationally, you turn up in this world and all this stuff is happening. You have no idea. You work it out as a kid. You think it's normal until you meet somebody else and it's not normal. And you realize that that happened to me. I, I was chatting with my cousin yesterday on the phone. Her mother, bless her, is, is struggling with um, dementia and repeatedly tells her. She's looking after this woman. She's a nightmare. A night she's always been a nightmare. But can you imagine a nightmare and then Alzheimer's? Oh, it's like really hard work. And so she goes over, she spends months with her mom, and her mom says things like this, you know, I hate you. And we all say it's the illness, but actually she's always hated her. <laughs> That's the truth. Oh, here you are with your la di da car, and your la di da this, and your la di da And I, I've been saying to my cousin, get out. <laughs> get out of that. You need to find an alternative reality. She's been there six months looking after a woman who detests her. Some of you can't wait six minutes with somebody who doesn't like you. Can you imagine the, the intensity of that? And so she, she started laughing about things. I said, do you remember when we were kids and we, we would laugh about things? She said, yes, I do. And she was telling me this story about what happened to her. And I said, you know, it's like looking in the mirror when I talk to you. The same things happened to me. Our family, our family, okay, had so much pain and so much brokenness and so much rejection and so much anxiety. They had no idea that they were really bad parents. really bad parents who puts their child to work at four who criticizes consistently throughout the course of a child's life that they're not as good as uncle so-and-so or auntie whatever nobody who has any brain cells that are working and functioning with what the human heart needs none of it and we are and have been subject to a generational dynamic that was so normal. When somebody told me I was good at something, I don't believe them. <laughs> Even as a Christian, when people say to me, oh, that was a good sermon. Oh, I like the way you did. Because I lived in a house where I was never enough. I could never get it right. And they thought they were doing me good. <laughs> I remember once, coming back from MCA, I just recorded my first album with MCA, and uh, I was delighted with it. I mean, I sang better than I'd ever sang before in my life. I knew it, I knew it. But I wanted my father to hear it. I wanted my mother to hear it. So back in the days of tapes, remember tapes? We don't see them anymore because all the witches wrap them around trees. They don't exist anymore. <laughs> but back in the days of, of tapes, do you remember that? That little thing we all went through? <laughs> <laughs> it's no wonder the world looks at us and thinks, what? Okay, but I remember playing the tape, and I wouldn't look at my dad. I wouldn't look at my dad, and I, I was playing this song, and it was like a ballad, and it was about five or six, I think, that I was playing for the first one, and I looked down, I'm looking down, looking down, and I can't resist, and I look up out of the corner of my eye, and he's going... 
So I do, as all good sons do. Move it on to the next one. He might like that. <laughs> I move it on to the next one. He says, <laughs> he says, I got to go to the toilet. <laughs> I got to go to the toilet. He was in the toilet two hours. <laughs> normal, just normal, just life, just how it was. But you think those things don't shape your perception of you? You think they don't shape your perception of relationships? Of course they do. And nobody tells us that we can have a better choice. Nobody tells us there's an alternative. That's the good news of the gospel. I am no longer a slave to fear. That's the good news of the gospel. I don't have to live under any generational dynamic in my family because the blood, the blood speaks of a better way. The blood cuts me off from all of that nonsense. But I have to apply that truth and align myself to that truth and live in that truth. Second thing that really disrupts your perception of self is soul and spirit hurts. They are things that have happened to you. It's not your fault. You didn't ask for it. You didn't invite it. But... Rejection, abandonment, abuse. All kinds of things happen during the course of our lives and they shape the way we see ourselves. And trauma is one of the most profound places where the enemy begins to hijack a human soul. So if you've had a life where there's been trauma or difficulty or rejection or abandonment, you probably have a perspective of yourself that's an alternative reality to the one that God says is true. And you've got to be honest with that. You've got to come into partnership with his truth. And you've got to forgive people. And you've got to repent of any partnership you made with a lie or a trauma that's kept you captive. And you can sing your songs until Jesus gets back. But until you undo these contracts, you are still subject to certain dynamics. And then the final one, and we'll close with this. Because next week we're going to talk about us relating to other people. But ungodly beliefs. <laughs> oh, I could hear it. I haven't got any of those. <laughs> I could hear it in the room. Ungodly beliefs. I've been a Christian a thousand years. How could I have an ungodly belief? Do you know what an ungodly belief is? Let me just keep it simple for you. Anything you believe is more true than what God says about you. What about this? He is the supplier of all my needs according to his riches in glory. But you know, tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to work myself to a frazzle because I have learned nobody's going to give me anything. Which belief system do you think is heavenly and which one do you think is earthly? Yeah. What about this one? I am my beloved's and he is mine. If you really believed that, then why do you strive in your spirituality to prove something to God? Think it through. How many times have you tried to prove something to God? Ah, oh. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to read my Bible for 15 hours a day. I'm going to pray for the nations. And then by half past 10, it's all fallen flat. Okay, you did 10 minutes in intercession and you thought, God, I'm exhausted. How do you do this, Jesus, eternally? The great high priest intercedes for us day and night. Well, he's not interceding from a place of striving. 
He's interceding from a place of abiding. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That speaks of a finished work. His viewpoint is very different. He's not worried. He's not anxious. He's not concerned because it's already been accomplished. Amen? Christians don't tell lies. They just sing them. They just sing them. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Until tomorrow. Until tomorrow. I'm all right in here. I can be a child of God in here. Get out there tomorrow and I have this doggy dog boy. I'm a wolf. <laughs> Take my car park in space. You'll know about it. I always wanted to do that. I've never been able to do that. I, my fingers are too short and stubby to be able to have them smack together. So. It's, it's another trial I've suffered in life. So generational curses, soul and spirit hurts, and a God who believes have set for you a world internally that in many ways is at war with the God who loves you. And that little phrase it just blew me away this week when I was looking around this. I just thought, God, after all these years of walking with you, can it really be the case that although I know in my head all of these things, this love your neighbor as you love yourself bit actually might be something I need to pay attention to. I think it is. Shall we stand? To just round the thought as we pray. In case you're uncomfortable with this concept of loving yourself, I know I am, to be honest. I think it sounds mushy and Oprah and New Agey. There's a, a wonderful part of the Bible in 1 Samuel where David is surrounded by the brokenness of other people and completely and utterly distraught by the brokenness of his own life. And it says in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. And, and I believe that that's what you and I need to do. We need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. All of these things do play a part in our lives. I won't pretend to you they haven't impacted every human soul I've ever tried to help. But actually, we have an advocate and we have a provision in Jesus Christ that means I don't have to live with all of those internal disagreements with God and, and difficulties with myself I can come to a point where I can strengthen myself in the Lord. So perhaps you would just pray with me about that. Lord Jesus, I thank you that your word is more than just concepts. Your word is an invitation to us to live in the reality of your nature and your character. And when I think of you in that way, Lord, I realize that you are the God 
who is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No divisions. No vacancies. You are complete and whole. And Lord, I know that's your heart for our hearts and your church particularly, that we would be one as you are one. Jesus prayed those prayers. Make them one as we are one. But Lord, to be one with someone else first requires that I am at one with you and also that I am at one with myself. I can't ask for um, unity in the body when there's not unity in my body. How blind am I to try and take the speck out of other people's eyes when there's a great gaping log that's obscuring my vision of truth in my life. I ask you simply, Holy Spirit, that you won't relent in any of our hearts until we are at one with you and indeed, Lord, at one with ourselves. Strengthen us with power from on high. Renew our minds by your word. Restore our souls to their rightful and glorious reality. And Father God, as the psalmist David prayed in his moment of deep reflection and I believe confrontation where he recognized just how broken he was, he said these words in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart O oh God, and listen to the second phrase, and renew a right spirit within me. This is our humble plea. This is our current prayer. God, build your house. Build your church. Build it from the inside, God. Build us from the inside that we may live in the fullness of all you've afforded us. And Father, put our heads on our pillows at night and say, it is well with my soul. Minister to us, I pray, throughout this week. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Thank you, church. Have a wonderful week.